would like to welcome you to the Winsome Conviction Podcast. My name is Rick Langer, and I'm one of your co-hosts here. I'm a professor of Biblical Studies and Theology here at Biola University, also the Director of the Office of Faith and Learning. And one of my favorite things is also working with the Winsome Conviction Project and my good friend and colleague, Tim Muehlhoff. Rick, it's great to be here with you. One of the fun things about this podcast is we get to bring on people that we deeply admire uh, whose work honestly laid the foundation for not only our own writings, but for the Winsome Conviction Project. And we get to have one of those guests today. His name is Richard Mao. He's an American theologian and philosopher. He held the position of president at Fuller Theological Seminary for 20 years. And his book, Uncommon Decency, is really was one of the foundational books that uh, led us thinking about this entire project. I had the privilege when Dr. Mao came to Biola University with our Center for Christian Thought to do a panel conversation uh, with him on civility, kindness, perspective taking, along with one of our professors, Tom Crisp, with our chaplain, uh, Todd Pickett. And Dr. Mao, that conversation that we had many years ago really got the ball going for us thinking about something like the Winsome Conviction Project. So Rick and I just want to start this by simply saying thank you for your lifetime of service, for thanking, for wading into really difficult areas and showing us how to do that from a distinctly Christian perspective. Welcome. Well, thank you so much. And uh, thank you guys. I mean, really, I'm uh, very excited to follow up on a lot of things. I have Whatever you learned from me, you've taken it further, and I've uh, learned from you. Well, we really appreciate that. Uh, before we jump in to your book, Uncommon Decency, tell us a little bit about what prompted you to take on the topic of civility. Well, you know, it was back in the 1980s. Uh, I had been involved in a number of discussions of international relations and uh, you know, the kinds of political concerns that uh, we all have together. And it just struck me that religion was a big part of the problem internationally. So I was thinking about Northern Ireland. And I'd been there. I gave some lectures there about Protestants and Catholics and dialogue here. And uh, the Middle East, the Muslims and, and uh, Jews killing each other and uh, and also uh, Bosnia Herzegovina, where there were, you know, mm. Christian versus Muslim, and I began to think, how could Christianity as a religious movement in the world be a part of the solution rather than a part of the problem? And at the same time, I, you know, I, I do a lot of philosophical work and political theory and the like, and I've been reading some Aristotle and some other things about citizenship. And the idea of civility came up. And, uh, and then I, I, you, you guys know the story. I mean, I, I, there was a, a little book by Martin Marty that I was reading, and he had this wonderful line, Martin Marty, the great Lutheran commentator, theologian, historian. He says, a lot of people who are civil these days don't have very strong convictions. And a lot of people who have strong convictions aren't very civil. And what we need is convicted civility. Yes, and I appreciate that that uh, quote from from Martin Marty about this tension. It seems to to be in the background about if if you actually have a conviction, somehow we imagine that as pushing back against the notion of civility, 
one of the things that we've talked about a lot is actually making civility a matter of conviction um, to say we don't really have the option to opt out. No, that's right. Uh, it, it's a thing. And, and you see, that's the thing that I came up with after a while, that uh, it isn't that we've got all these biblical convictions and then we're trying to sort of superimpose civility on them. But the biblical convictions include a mandate to civility. Where does the mandate to civility come from in the scriptures? And it really is there, and we need to take it very seriously. What a, just exactly on that theme, one of the things that uh, has come up in some of the discussions we've had is the fact that civility as a term isn't there in the Bible. So what is, one of the words that we have talked some about is gentleness, um, which is amazing. Once you start looking at the number of times and ways, it's, it's not recommended. It's literally commanded of us. It's a mark of the fruit of the Spirit, so in these areas. And let me just ask you, would you consider gentleness and civility, are they basically synonyms? Do they kind of complement each other? Um, are, are they two different concepts? Could you think with us just a little bit about that and how those are connected? Well, I think the gentleness, and you're right, so we don't have to go look, looking all that up, although my favorite one is in Peter 3.15, you know, be, give a reason for the hope within yeah. you, but do so with gentleness. Mm. You see, I think gentleness is the general term. Then we have to think, what is uh, parental gentleness? What is marital gentleness? Hmm. What is classroom gentleness? Uh, what does gentleness mean when you're in line at, uh, at Whole Foods? You know? <laughs> All of this kind of stuff. So that civility is public gentleness in our roles as citizen, because that word civility comes from the word for city for mm -hmm. public life. So it's, it's specifically, I want to say public gentleness. That, that's a very helpful distinction. Yeah, and let me just uh, remind my listeners that Dr. Langer wrote a wonderful piece for the Christ Animated Learning blog sponsored by the Christian Scholars Review on gentleness. And I just encourage you to go look that up. Also check out his one on everything I learned from Tim Yulhoff, a much shorter <laughs> piece, but still absolutely brilliant. Um, Dr. Mao, let me ask this. Some people have said that today it's much, much more difficult to be civil. In other words, times have just simply changed. It's no longer feasible to pursue peace in today's argument culture, but you're not so sure that that assertion is true. Let me read something from your book that really stood out to me. You write, when the biblical writer first urged the followers of Christ to pursue peace with everyone, the society was at least as multicultural and pluralistic as ours. The early Christians were surrounded by a variety of religious and moral systems. Their pagan neighbors worshiped many gods and that worship was sometimes so depraved that it would even be shocking in today's permissive culture. So you're not so quick to say uh, times are so bad today that Christians have never experienced it. I want to go back further into uh, the Old Testament where God's people who had had their own temple, they had some godly rulers, certainly godly laws, uh, and then suddenly they're uprooted and taken into the wicked city of Babylon. And, and wondering, how in the world do we sing the Lord's song in this strange land? And ba Babylon was a very wicked pagan city. And then Jeremiah comes to them and says, here's the deal. You know, 
build houses and live in them, plant gardens. Uh, you got to settle in here. Marry off your sons and daughters and multiply in the land. And then this, but seek the, the welfare, the shalom of the city in which I placed you in exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its shalom, you will find your shalom. Now, and I think shalom is not identical with civility, but I think shalom means caring about other human beings and, and doing what we can to help them to flourish. Shalom is human flourishing. Yeah, and uh, I think civility is uh, certainly a, a way of that. I mean, you know, Aristotle was so good at this. That, you know, we first learned to bond with other people that, with mommy and daddy. You know, when we're very young, and then we learned to bond with friends beyond the kinship system. But he said we don't really grow up, we don't really mature, until we learn to bond with people in the public square. And those people are different from us. They may be a different race, a different religion, a different tribe, a different lifestyle. But we have to recognize our shared humanity with them. And, you know, biblically, it's recognizing that every human being that I come across is created in the image of, of the God and Father of Jesus Christ. And that's a sense in which out there amidst the worst people in the world, we're still in sacred ground. <laughs> mm. And uh, we need to learn how to handle that. And the Bible doesn't say be civil or be gentle only with people you like. <laughs> no. And I mean, that's easy. Let me just pick up on that real quickly. Uh, I, I, what you're, you're giving a, a piece of what I, you know, kind of great theological advice in terms of seeing the person you're talking to, who, who is a person you may disagree with, as nonetheless being a person made in the image of God and things like that. One of the things I admire about you over the course of the decades is your ability to successfully actually do that. Like so many other things, hey, that sounds great in theory. When it comes to practice, it seems like it breaks down. So I'm just wondering if you could just Give us a few, tell us maybe a little bit of your story about how you developed that, or perhaps a few insights you have about actually putting that kind of perspective into action in the face of conflicting convictions or, you know, whatever else might, might cause you ill feelings towards another person. I was on National Public Radio one time with a, a gay activist uh, who actually at a university taught queer theory. Uh -huh. And uh, we were talking about our differences, you know. And uh, we, we get kind of sharp with each other for a little while. And then it occurred to me, uh, this guy is, in a certain way, he's afraid of me. And in a certain way, I'm afraid of him, you know. Mm. And so I said, hey, let me just say something. You know, your people are listening and cheering you on, and my people may be listening and cheering me on. Well, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just turn off the mics, get in a room, close the door, and I could ask you, what is it about people like me that bother you so much? Mm. Hmm. And you could ask me, what is it about what, what, me, what I and my partner want out of life that I find you so threatened to, you know? Yeah. And is there any way that we can get along out there? Mm. And, you know, what I was getting at there, and, I, you know, I've quoted this a lot more recently, but I, 
all of a sudden it hit me afterward. I was reflecting on that that wonderful line in the Christmas Carol: "The hopes and fears of all the years hmm. are met in thee tonight." And and I began to adopt what I I call the kind of uh, methodology of hopes and fears. You know, hmm. uh, there are people that I love who voted very differently than I did in the last presidential, last couple presidential elections. And, uh, you know, I could easily get angry with them and say, why did you vote that way? But, you know, they, they, I don't define them in terms of how they voted. These are grandparents who care about raising their kids in contemporary culture, you know. Uh, they worry about the economic stability of the society in which they live. And I find it much more interesting to to focus on hopes and fears. And then there's a little line that I learned from uh, young life people. Uh, they say, if you want to know what a 15-year-old girl believes about God, don't ask her, what do you believe about God? But ask her, what do your friends believe about God? Mm. <laughs> and And because if you say, what do you believe about God? All of a sudden, she's... Oh, I hope I say this the right way. You know, I hope I don't make myself sound stupid. But if she's reporting about her friends, her her peers, uh, she relaxes. She's become kind of an amateur social psychologist. You know, <laughs> and you're going to learn what she believes about God. You know, from what she says. And there's something about that that, and and this has to do with just how we talk. Uh, I have found it, I, actually, as a Jewish friend of mine, uh, we were doing a bunch of things on leadership. And we ran into some uh, fundamentalist type congregational people. And this, she's a, not a secular Jew. And she paid me a compliment afterwards. She said, Oh, you know, watching you interact with people you disagree with, I find that you seldom will say, Well, why do you believe that? But instead, you say, help me to understand what you're saying. You know, mm. Is this the way you would put it? And I think she was a, bit, a little too charitable to me, but she actually made me aware of what I really think is the right way to engage with people we disagree with. And there's a, your listeners could check this out. There's a, a wonderful short document called the uh, Dialogue Decalogue, the Ten Commandments for Being in Dialogue. Huh dialogue oh. with people you disagree with. You can find at least 15 times on the web. And it was it was forged out of uh, interfaith dialogue. And uh, most of the commandments, the Ten Commandments, I agree with. I, I put on a different spin on some of them as an evangelical Christian. But here, here are the two things. Enter into, if, if you're going to talk to somebody you really disagree with, don't go in trying to win an argument. They're trying to go in and try to understand that person mm. and trying to make sure that when you come away from that, you can articulate what they believe in ways that they would put it themselves. Yeah. And that's yeah. a learning experience. Yeah. And then another question, and then another thing is, uh, uh, yeah, to enter into it as a learning experience. That's the, that's the big thing. And, and then the thing is, why do we want to learn? Well, as Christians, I think if we're really going to present 
the good news to people, we've got to present it to real people. <laughs> and that means that we need to listen to them. And I, I was, boy, that was great. I was, I was writing that down as you were speaking. Going back to that illustration when you were on that program with the uh, person who was supporting gay rights, and you said, uh, why don't we just turn off the microphones and talk to each other? What really struck me about that is how really hard that is to do practically. I'm doing a, a debate coming up with a, a YouTube atheist, and I would just love to say it's going to be uh, done live. And I would love to be able to say to him, hey, let's just turn off the microphones. Let's just have a conversation, you and me, about God, faith. But it occurs to me that I'm always thinking about what my community thinks about what I'm doing or saying. And that often really keeps me in check from doing anything that I think might move the needle. And so how, how do we do that balance of when I'm talking to this atheist, I'm also talking to the Christian community who's checking me out to see if I'm... Yeah towing the line, and that usually keeps me uh, from doing anything risky to move uh, the needle. Yeah. Well, that's one of the big problems of our, our culture today. Uh, you know, many of the dialogues that we have, uh, people are going to try to declare a winner at the end mm -hmm. on, on radio, you know, television, uh, or on the Internet. And then the other thing is, uh, many of the dialogues, there's going to be a vote. I mean, that's one of the big problems in Christian denominations where we debate sexuality. Uh, we're going to vote. <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, yeah. a decision has to be made. Right. Or we have cheerleading groups, you know, yeah. who are cheering us on. And we need to simply try to find places and this is going to take the work. You know, for 20 years I've been involved in a, and you guys know about this, a dialogue with the, the Mormon, a group mm -hmm. of Mormon people. I mean, right now it's about six Mormons and six evangelicals. And this we began when a good friend of mine, Robert Millard, who was a dean at Brigham Young, and we've been together for 20 years. We, we were trying to figure out if we could have a dialogue where the co-sponsoring institutions would be Fuller Seminary, Brigham Young University. And of course, you know, there are risks on both sides there. So I brought Robert Miller to our board of trustees and we had an off the record session and asked them to really listen to why we wanted to have this dialogue. And Bob Miller said to them, you know, we Mormons, we, we haven't had a serious discussion with traditional Christians for 150 years. And when we say what our theology is like, we're not even sure we're using the right categories. You know, we talk about the three persons of the Godhead, but we say we don't believe in the Trinity. Yeah. Well, how hmm. do we clarify that? And he said, what we need is a safe place hmm. where we can close the door and where we can say to evangelical, let, let me try to put it this way and tell me how this comes across to you. Yeah. Hmm. But that, that made me think immediately of Antony Flew, when the great British atheist in his conversation with Gary Habermas, uh, who is one of our best um, defenders of the resurrection. And, and they had this conversation via letters, which is so different than trying to do that in, uh, on Facebook. Um, you know what I mean? Public documents. But I love the fact that they 
they kept it quiet until it was actually Antony Flew who went public with, with the fact that he was now embracing maybe the god of Aristotle. But you're right. We, we, so we need to have the public events. But I love that idea of let's take a risk and create some safe places where we can literally turn off the microphones of social media. Yeah. And that no, helps. that's right. And that's good. And, and I, I was uh, – I can't tell you how much I appreciated that Anthony Flew thing, because as a, as a doctoral student in philosophy, I got to meet Anthony Flew. I wouldn't have thought of him as a, a gentle dialogue person. <laughs> but I, I really felt that he had come to a place in his life as a minister's son who had rebelled. His father was a Methodist minister, uh, where he'd come to a place in his life where he was really searching. And Habermas and others uh, said, hey, let's talk, you know? Yeah. And let's try to talk in, in ways that, uh, that, that meet the needs of both of our searches. And that, that was, uh, that's a good thing. Anyway, that's wonderful. That, well, let me uh, bring, a, bring a close to this uh, particular uh, episode, and we're going to Ask Dr. Mal to, to hang in there with us for a, for a second episode. But we want to thank all of our listeners for the Winsome Conviction podcast. And we encourage you to subscribe. You can find us at Apple Podcasts or Google Play or wherever you like to Spotify, wherever you like to get your podcasts. And also check us out at the winsomeconviction.com website. You'll find resources and articles and things like that that are available there. And we're so grateful for all of our listeners, grateful especially for special guests like Dr. Mao. And we encourage you to join us for, for part two because we'll be continuing this conversation. Thank you.